Hi, folks. You're listening to the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Christopher. Today, we're going to talk about Forest Haven, an abandoned state school and developmental center in Laurel, Maryland, that was the site of the deadliest known case of institutional neglect in American history. It's often called an asylum online, but it's not. Asylums in state hospitals were primarily used to house residents with mental illnesses, and state schools were primarily used for housing individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. This is the latter. So, uh, this is not going to be a happy or cheerful story. I'm telling you that going into this. Forest Haven probably has what I'd consider the most heartbreaking and bleak story of all the places I've been to, and that is really saying something since, you know, visiting places with tragic stories is sort of what I do. It's also, in my opinion, one of the most important stories, because people should know what happened in state schools, developmental centers, and institutions. If your reaction to this podcast is sorrow and outrage, that's because you absolutely should be angry and upset hearing about events like these at places like this. And that anger and sadness really need to be transformed into vigilance and action to make sure that things like this never happen again. If you think that institutional abuse and neglect of vulnerable populations are part of the days of yore and don't happen anymore, this is your wake-up call. Having said that, I do try to be respectful that not everybody has the emotional bandwidth to try and deal with soul-crushing stories, so here's your content warning. This story goes into a good bit of detail about neglect and the real-world fatal consequences of it. There's also references to rape, racism and ableism, and abuse. Honestly, it would probably be easier to list potentially triggering topics that aren't in the episode since there's so many that are, so please bear that in mind as you make your decision about listening, as there really is more than I can list here. I personally had a really tough time researching and writing this, and wound up leaving out some of the most horrific details because I felt there's already more than enough horrific details included to get the point across. Another thing I'd like to discuss before we start is the use in the episode of archaic clinical terms and titles that are rightfully considered slurs in present day, particularly variants on mental retardation or labeling people as feeble-minded, idiots, and so forth. According to the University of Minnesota, IDD is the currently used umbrella term for intellectual and developmental disabilities, which include everything from autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, spina bifida, and a whole range of other medical and neurological conditions that would potentially be present in the people who lived at Forest Haven. So IDD is the terminology you want to use if you want to be thoughtful towards others, and why would you not? It costs nothing, and it's the right thing to do. There are a myriad of terms used in the past that are hurtful and derogatory, and I will be perfectly frank, I have put a lot of thought into how to present an episode that by necessity must deal with them. I can't really say I'm comfortable with any of the options. My gut feeling here is that they should be present in quotes and facility names which use them to give an accurate look at what Forest Haven's past was. I don't know if this is the right answer or the best way to handle it, but I do hope as you listen you'll understand that my reading them does not equal my condoning their usage. It's important to me to present this story in a way that is respectful to the individuals who resided at Forest Haven, and when you're talking about mistreatment of a group of people who have been horrifically discriminated against and marginalized, in hopes of serving as a warning and a catalyst for change, you're staring down a dark pit. When you shine a flashlight down it, you're gonna see some pretty awful things. Sorry in advance. 
So hey, now that I probably talked most of you out of continuing to the episode, if you do listen and want to see what remains of Forest Haven, check the podcast description for a link to the show notes, photo gallery, and essay transcript, or just head over to the Abandoned America website. That's abandonedamerica.us. You can also support this podcast on Patreon for a bunch of nifty perks. People like you contributing there is what makes this possible. I know this has been a pretty long intro, my apologies. Let's get to the story of Forest Haven. From its foundation in 1925, the District Training School for the Mentally Retarded was less about treating those with physical or developmental disabilities than it was about removing them from sight. The school's Laurel, Maryland location was chosen by Congress for its rural setting and to replace the appallingly named Washington Home for Colored Idiots, which residents of the nearby Logan Circle neighborhood had pressured lawmakers to close because they didn't want it near their houses. The new training school's campus comprised approximately 300 acres and 22 buildings, including a cafeteria, a recreational center, a gym, a theater, a baseball field, a hospital, a chapel, administrative offices, school buildings, dormitories, and a farm. Described as state-of-the-art, programs like the ones held in the farm colony were designed to teach residents useful skills that would eventually help them to find jobs in the region, such as tending crops and milking cows. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly where the district training school made the transition from a relatively inconspicuous treatment and training center to what one investigating attorney described as the deadliest known example of institutional abuse in recent American history. In the beginning, at least, things appeared uneventful. Then, in 1954, a man was arrested in Pennsylvania on white slavery charges for bringing a resident of the school to York for purposes of prostitution, although there's nothing indicating this was anything more than an isolated incident. That doesn't mean that it was, just that I don't have any sources that it was not. Around that time, a Frederick, Maryland newspaper also carried a story about a boy who was committed to the school after living with a pack of stray dogs for over two weeks because he was afraid of being whipped at home. Sadly, this probably was not much of an upgrade. One of the most widespread stories about Forest Haven was in 1961 when a beer-drinking, trumpet-playing white rabbit named Jaja was sent by a magician to the White House as a present for three-year-old Caroline Kennedy. Jaja was quickly re-gifted to the district training school's hospital, the District of Columbia Children's Center, unfortunately without verifying whether it could actually play the first five bars of the Star-Spangled Banner on the toy trumpet provided as claimed. Another incident in 1961 that happened at almost the exact same time received much less news coverage. A 17-year-old African-American resident was scalded to death while locked in a barred detention room after a fight. A pipe which carried 300 degrees steam and boiling water under 55 pounds of pressure broke while he was left unsupervised in the room. He was pronounced dead at the Children's Center. Little other information on the incident was given. Patient escape stories were more common, including an incident in 1973 where four employees were kidnapped at gunpoint by three men trying to break a resident out of the facility. Based on later information about conditions at Forest Haven, These kidnappers might have actually been the good guys in this story, I don't know. Most of these news items are pretty minimal when it comes to details. The House of Representatives officially changed the name of the school to Forest Haven in 1963 and amended the terms feeble-minded to mentally retarded and inmate to patient. The same decree made it possible for the District of Columbia Department of Public Welfare 
to forego the court order and hearing previously necessary for admission, and instead perform intake at its discretion. This basically means that there wasn't even the minimal checks and balances provided by the involvement of the court system. By 1969, Forest Haven's population had reached 1,250, and the cost of care per day for each resident was $9.75. At some point in the 1960s, funding was slashed and recreation and athletic programs were cut. As time progressed, Forest Haven gained a reputation as less of a program for treatment and care than a dumping ground for anyone that the District of Columbia couldn't be bothered to deal with. People who were hearing impaired, dyslexic, or epileptic were put into cottages with individuals with developmental disabilities, and often their cognitive abilities regressed. One particularly egregious instance happened in 1974 when a local orphanage was closed and 20 children were classified as quote-unquote retarded so they could be moved there indefinitely. In the late 1970s, the story came to light of a woman who had been classified as mildly retarded in 1933 when her husband left her. She spent nearly 45 years confined at Forest Haven. Her children were told she'd abandoned them. On that awful note, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, it's going to get much, much worse. Alright, we're back. I can't even really think of a way to adequately prepare you for what's next, so let's just get to it. The push for deinstitutionalization in the 1970s was the beginning of the end for many of the nation's asylums and institutions. Public sentiment had begun to shift, and the prevailing belief was now that community-based treatment was more humane and provided better results. Terrible stories such as the suicides of four youths in seclusion at Forest Haven leaked out into the community. The bombshell was a landmark class-action lawsuit, Evans et al. v. Washington, alleging that inhumane treatment at Forest Haven violated the constitutional rights of residents. Filed by Betty Evans in response to the death of her 18-year-old daughter Joy, the suit uncovered a story of abuse and neglect so horrible that it's hard to even fathom. Joy Evans was committed to Forest Haven at 8 years old. Her parents were unable to provide 24-hour care because of their work schedule, schools wouldn't take her, and private schools were too expensive. During Joy's years at Forest Haven, Betty observed injuries on her daughter that ranged from chipped teeth to scratches, lacerations, and bruises all over her body. On one occasion, Joy's back was raw from urine burns that occurred when she was restrained on a rubber sheet. Betty wrote in an affidavit, Dogwood, the cottage where Joy lived, was a veritable snake pit. I once witnessed a nurse open the cottage door only to find 80 half-clad screaming women come running to the door. The nurse quickly closed it shut. According to the lawsuit, quote, staff members locked dozens of residents, naked except for adult-sized diapers, in rooms stripped of furniture other than wooden benches, end quote. Joy died from improper feeding, the cause of death of dozens if not hundreds of others. Residents were often fed baby food while lying down, which led to vomiting, gastrointestinal bleeding, and aspirational pneumonia, which is when food, liquid, or vomit is inhaled into the lungs, causing a fatal infection or choking. The father of a 22-year-old who died of aspirational pneumonia at Forest Haven stated, quote, They wouldn't even give him time to swallow what he had in his mouth. They would be pouring it in him like they were pouring water down his throat, and it would just all come back out of his mouth and nose, end quote. Such treatment was more likely the result of ignorance and haste than of intentional cruelty. There was always the threat of being fired if 8 to 10 people were not fed by a staff member in the period that it would take to properly feed one. 
In Murray Wass's heartbreaking expose for the Washington Post, an occupational therapist was quoted as saying, nobody ever instructed them that it was wrong to feed the residents lying down. The sad thing is that many of the workers were the only people in the world who cared about many of the residents. As a nurse tenderly cared for a resident while Murray Wass watched, she concluded by feeding him while he was lying down. When the Justice Department joined the lawsuit and the case was settled in 1978, it must have seemed like a great victory. Forest Haven was to be closed and the residents were to be moved to group homes and fed properly. Despite the city government's promise, Forest Haven would remain open until October 14, 1991, continuing to kill residents with improper care and feeding the entire time. A proposal to spend $24,698 to train workers in proper feeding technique was shot down due to a lack of funds, and the Justice Department's efforts to expedite the closure because of the deaths were met with hardened indifference from Federal District Judge John Pratt, who reasoned, quote, These people are not in the best of health, probably, any of them, end quote. It was difficult to find lawyers to represent residents. The damages in wrongful death lawsuits are dictated by how much the person would have conceivably earned for the rest of their lives, and residents of Forest Haven would be expected to earn little if any money. So in the eyes of the law, there's not much of a case and almost no money to be won. Betty Evans' conclusion, and that of Murray Waugh's article, was that the city government and the entire community were to blame for the callousness towards Forest Haven's residents, and it certainly seems like a reasonable assumption. This was a facility where a staff member embezzled $40,000 from residents, where residents lost their teeth because of inadequate dental care and vomiting from improper feeding, where residents died from bed sores and being kept indefinitely in adult cribs. Little more happened in response to repeated warnings of deadly neglect than the unceremonious dumping of victims' bodies via a maintenance truck into mass graves, their passing marked with nothing more than a numbered metal disc. How could it seem like anything else than a malevolent lack of concern for the children and adults in our midst who are least able to articulate abuse and defend themselves? Forest Haven was one of the earliest abandoned sites that I visited. I wasn't aware of how profoundly terrible its past was, but it quickly impressed itself upon me as a spectacularly eerie place. Nestled away in the woods between a juvenile detention facility called Oak Hill Youth Center, the Woodland Job Corps Center, and the headquarters for the National Security Agency, odd tones and garbled announcements from the Job Corps' compound pierced the silence at frequent intervals. I didn't know yet about the grades on campus that had been uncovered by erosion, or the tragic detachment from the well-being of residents that led to Forest Haven's closure. When I emerged from the trees and entered the Curley Building, a nearly 70,000-square-foot structure built in 1971 to house 200 of the most disabled residents, I was confronted with old school books, gruesomely decaying paintings of Peanuts characters, and the pervasive adult cribs that I'd find scattered throughout the campus. As I crossed the road to enter the children's hospital, a lone wheelchair sat out in front, nearly swallowed by the unkempt grass. The deterioration inside the hospital was severe. Rusted light fixtures hung at odd angles, discarded toys littered the rooms, and in the remains of the dental offices, bottles of anesthetic sat next to the twisted examination chairs. The basement was shrouded in darkness, and the drop tiles in the ceiling had fallen out and blended into a dirty muck on the ground. It was there that I found the morgue still relatively intact. A Stokes basket used by firefighters in search and rescue missions leaned against the wall. It seemed improbable that it was used for anything other than transporting bodies. 
As I photographed the morgue alone, I noticed dozens of small pairs of glasses around my feet in the sludge, and it dawned on me that they had most likely all belonged to dead children. It was without a doubt one of the most sickening and upsetting moments in my entire career of exploring abandoned places. Each time I returned to Forest Haven over the years, I found new, unsettling details. There was the spring-mounted horse lost in the weeds by the playground, the suitcase stacked in a storage room that held the residents' belongings when they arrived but never left, the empty shoes that were in so many areas. There were the little crutches and braces that the children used in the ubiquitous large cribs in the basements and hallways. Paperwork carpeting the offices gave glimpses into unimaginable things. In one document, a dentist angrily complained about the impossible working conditions and their awful effects on the residents. The dentist wrote in one report, quote, Her primary dental problem is advanced periodontal disease resulting from atrocious oral hygiene. She is extremely severe gingivitis. Her last prophylaxis was done on 6-189. At present, the teeth are covered with a thick layer of plaque and food debris. In addition to the periodontal disease, this has also produced a revolting odor to her breath. There's no hygienist taking care of these clients. Without a hygienist, this work cannot be done. We can do some, but not all of them. We must select the worst cases and do them first. A hygienist should have been hired four years ago. End quote. Another report described a girl with hydrocephalus and osteogenesis imperfecta, also known as brittle bone syndrome. She wanted to go out and play with the other children, but had to be kept in the crib. If released from confinement, there was a high risk that her bones would snap. There was Spruce Cottage, which had been surrounded by ringlets of razor wire and reused by the Oak Hill Youth Center to detain violent females. I photographed that shortly after it was closed when there were still full pill bottles in the medicine carts and faceless CPR dummies with black voids for faces staring down the darkened hallway. Oak Hill Youth Center had its own horrors. Aside from the general squalor, a 1989 investigation concluded staff had wounded or beaten juveniles with a brick, knife, chair, milk cartons, and fists, causing broken teeth and noses, a dislocated shoulder, kidney injuries, and eyes swollen shut. After Oak Hill's closure in 2009, another youth center named New Beginnings opened elsewhere on the property. I'd like to believe the days of the ill-fated vacation Forest Haven residents took in 1976 to Wildwood, New Jersey are long gone. Local residents surrounded their motel and threatened to burn it because they, quote, didn't want any colored or retarded, end quote, to stay there. And the local police failed to do anything to protect them. Their bus was pelted with rocks as they left. The closure of the facility in 1991, though, is not so long ago, and thoughtless visitors to the campus have painted the words RETARDS in capital letters on some of the buildings much more recently. After Forest Haven closed, the residents were moved to underfunded, poorly supervised group homes described as roach-dappled and full of broken furniture and doors. A Washington Post article by Catherine Booth from 1999 told the story of one former resident who was raped repeatedly by a sexual predator who was placed in the room next to his. The victim eventually tried to commit suicide by running out into traffic. The same neglect, lack of oversight, unchecked abuse, and public indifference continued as for-profit entrepreneurs who lived in multi-million dollar villas operate group homes that claim not to be able to afford toilet paper for the residents. When Forest Haven was open, 
A doctor whose license was suspended provided grossly inadequate care, resulting in the death of residents. The licensing board had previously declared his continued practice posed, quote, a grave risk and imminent danger to the health, safety, and welfare of the citizens of Maryland. And yet he continued there. According to Catherine Boo, after Forest Haven closed a convicted embezzler, a psychologist who billed the government for treating the dead, and a man who paid go-go dancers as group home consultants, were among those paid by the district to run group homes and therapeutic programs. The city was billed for therapy programs that included group home residents shoveling manure at the owner's manor. Care for those with severe developmental and physical disabilities is tremendously challenging and requires compassion and vigilance. In situations like the girl with osteogenesis imperfecta, our own helplessness to resolve the root illnesses makes us confront questions that have no easy answers. People who are marginalized and may not be able to report their concerns to others are the easiest for predators of any kind to abuse. When the state schools were founded, it was hoped they would provide opportunities for care and supervision that families were sometimes unable to, where trained staff could help residents learn skills and receive a better standard of treatment than what their homes and communities could provide. I believe Betty Evans was right that an overall apathy towards the well-being of the less fortunate among us turned this dream into a nightmare that claimed many, many lives. The bronze plaque that used to be in front of the District of Columbia Children's Center read, Yet while I live, let me not live in vain. It's an interesting statement, one that takes on different meanings when applied to the lives of the residents of Forest Haven, its staff, and the overall lifespan and shattered remains of Forest Haven itself. After all, if what happened at Forest Haven and afterwards doesn't inspire a public commitment to monitor residential treatment facilities of any type and to demand that they are clean, humane, and well-run, all of the suffering was for nothing. Well, if you're still here, thank you for listening to the episode. I know it's pretty god-awful to hear about things like this, and it's god-awful researching and writing about them, too. But we have to remember that people had to live in conditions like these. Some still do. And our alternative, which is not hearing about them, allows abuse and neglect to continue in silence. I do believe we have a moral and ethical responsibility to prevent anyone from being placed in situations like the ones at Forest Haven. And the first step towards that is vigilance and awareness. We need to be on the lookout for facilities that are not providing humane and dignified care, take reports of abuse seriously if we hear them, and demand that our lawmakers on all levels do also. I'm going to include links in the show notes that'll take you to a directory of advocacy organizations if you'd like to take a step further and join or donate to one. It's also very worthwhile taking some time to look into what they're advocating for, as honestly, I'm never going to do as good a job of outlining needed reforms and how to best take actions as an organization full of people who have devoted their entire career to it and individuals who may actually have experienced living in facilities like Forest Haven. So it's best to check in directly with them. That's a subject that really would require its own full episode of the podcast, and if you'd like to see it covered in the future, let me know. I definitely think it would be worthwhile to interview an expert on the subject who can provide a more detailed look at the present lay of the land. One final note, as I mentioned in the top of the episode, I really try to be compassionate and respectful with my presentation. 
even if it's of some really upsetting material, and if you feel I've missed the mark there in any way, I apologize in advance and hope you'll understand that it's not for lack of caring. If you do find this podcast useful and informative, you can help keep it going by supporting it on Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica, or you can just follow the link in the show description. I'd like to thank all my current supporters there with a special shout out to Peter E., Jennifer D., Terry G., Donna B., L. M., Mary Lynn D., Alexander F., and Steve M. Subscribing to the podcast, recommending it to friends, and reviewing it on podcast platforms that support that, like Apple, is really helpful also. Music in the episode was by Scott Buckley and Ashot Danielian. You can also head on over to my website, abandonedamerica.us, to read the transcript of the episode, check out my photos of what's left at Forest Haven, and explore hundreds of other abandoned places too. I'll also have links to that in the show description. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to hang out with me, and I'll be back in two weeks with another episode, in theory on a topic that's a little easier on the spirit. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you've been listening to Abandoned America. Abandoned America.